Well, good day and welcome to another episode here of the Disaster Podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Davis, the pod medic, and we are back again. And I really just think we have a pretty good show once again. I keep saying that every week, and it's something I've been doing for going on, what, eight years now? But hey, it's oh, I'm lucky. Uh, yeah, maybe punching on nine. You're right. Um, and, and I just have to say it's because I have such an amazing group of people that we have on as regulars on the show. It's my co-host, Sam Bradley, you just heard. And of course, our fantastic and amazing guests. And without further ado, I'll let Sam jump in because this is going to be a great episode. Yes, it is. Sam, the snow medic, although we don't actually have snow at the moment, which is pretty amazing. However, we've had five days of wind here in the front range, and frankly, we're kind of getting tired of that. But we do have Mr. Kyle Nelson back from the mountains in between his winter and summer stuff. So what's, and there's a lot of stuff going on in the weather, Kyle. Please catch us up. Oh, heck yes, Sam. Hello, everyone out there in disaster podcast land. Uh, Kyle Nelson back here with you now following a wonderful ski season here in the central mountains of Colorado. Uh, Over the last week, uh, we've had uh, quite a bit of active weather to talk about. Multiple rounds of severe weather across the south central and southeastern United States uh, beginning you know, April 4 and now working its way into the eastern Carolinas today. Uh, storms have produced more than 30 tornadoes across uh, you know, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, and South Carolina on April 5th alone, resulting in uh, one documented fatality in Georgia and numerous injuries as well. And uh, for those data-driven folks like myself, kind of looking back to last month, yes, March was, uh, if it felt very active for tornadoes, it was indeed very active. And uh, looking back and crunching the numbers, uh, March 2022 now ranks as the um, most number of tornadoes recorded for March on record. And so that's uh, right. You know, hard to say, you know, if that trend's going to continue. But just consider that April and, you know, April, May, June are typically far busier tornado months on average. So uh, lots going on on the severe weather side, but also fire weather conditions really ramping up, as you said, Sam, with those strong winds across the front range of Colorado and east of the Rockies. Uh, we are in a, a very dangerously dry uh, weather pattern. So you have you know very high winds and low relative humidity combined with a persistent extreme drought across the uh, Western and especially the southwestern United States. And so uh, pay attention to those uh, fire weather products from our friends at the Storm Prediction Center, as well as from your local National Weather Service office, specifically uh, fire weather watches and red flag warnings. Yes. And on the other hand, uh, Jamie's got rain and local flooding there. Hey, Jamie, in the mid-Atlantic. Yeah, it rained. Cats and dogs today, really. Um, it just kept going. And, um, the, you know, I live at the top of the Chesapeake Bay, so we've got a lot of low low areas here. And the, the usual places that you expect to flood when we get a lot of rain all at once um, have, you know, kind of crested the banks and caused some localized flooding. Um, and it kind of – I think it just kind of caught some people by surprise. We didn't expect the rain to be quite that severe. But I think given all the weather that's been coming our way – it was really probably something we should have paid more attention to. Well, Kyle would be the first one to agree with that. That's his mantra. But, hey, Kyle, I heard something uh, about hurricane season coming up. They're expecting 
at least four major named storms. Is that a normal season or less than normal, or what do you think? Oh, right on, Sam. So uh, what, what you're referring to there, right, um, there's a couple different entities that issue forecasts for hurricane season, right? And again, we're talking a seasonal forecast, so there's not a lot of specifics. It's it's more generalities. But um, the one that was actually released this morning here, April 7, was from a uh, research group at Colorado St uh, State University. And uh, they are calling for uh, an above-average Atlantic hurricane season, uh, 19 named storms, they say, compared with a long-term average of about 14 and a half per season. Uh, looking back, right, uh, to the 2021 Atlantic hurricane season produced 21 named storms. And uh, although they're predicting a, a couple storms less than that this year, right, the numbers don't tell the whole story. Their forecasts really discussed their concern for a more active season in terms of uh, those those numbers that take into account both storm intensity and duration as well. So uh, the reason that that they're really seeing this uh, this again another above average season that they're forecasting for hurricanes is that La Nina, right? Uh, the talking about um, cooler than average surface water temperatures in the eastern equatorial Pacific Ocean, right? As the atmosphere uh, is an ocean system is well connected. Um, changes in sea surface temperatures in the Pacific can ultimately, uh, especially during La Nina years, they produce a, a uh, conditions that lead to a lack of wind shear across the Atlantic. And wind shear, right, as we've talked about a couple times on the podcast, right, uh, tend to uh, that can tear these very uh, delicate, even though they're mean looking, very delicate uh, um, tropical storms apart before they can grow to become hurricanes. La Nina, so a lack of wind shear there in the Atlantic, combined with already above average sea surface temperatures in the Gulf of Mexico and the Caribbean are two big ingredients that uh, could be uh, drivers for an above average hurricane season in the Atlantic. Look for the uh, hurricane season forecast from the uh, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration uh, coming out here in just a few weeks. Oh boy, can't wait. Well, another thing I can't wait for, since we want to talk about dogs, is we not only have our Dr. Joe Holly, but we have Mrs. Joe Holly, otherwise known as Kimberly, and she is our dog person. Hi, guys. Hi there. Hi, guys. So, you know, we might have mentioned this at one other point, Kimberly, but how did you decide to get started on SAR dog training? So uh, the quick answer is I blame Joe for all of this. Um, <laughs> he actually came to, um, I presented at my children's school uh, a few weeks ago, and uh, Joe came to see my career day presentation. He did not realize that I had a slide in there that said, I have a crazy husband and it's all his fault. But um, the, the, um, I, I started... Um, I started in rescue with an animal rescue and was very interested in large scale animal rescues and trying to get involved in some of the larger organizations that do that. Um, and I was also fostering and volunteering my time at the local animal shelter. I ended up sort of on a whim, um, getting a uh, certification and canine training and behavior. Um, I, I did that so that 
I could help dogs that might be difficult to place with homes. I could help them and uh, help them find their forever home. Um, so I had that that education and that background, that love of working with the dogs. When Joe deployed with our um, Tennessee task force team to Hurricane Michael, the devastating hurricane that hit uh, Mexico Beach, um, I think that was in 2018, um, he came home and uh, from that deployment and let me know that there was a spot on the K-9 team. And I had, uh, I had never thought of joining, but he took me out to our training center and we were, we happened to be hosting uh, a large certification test that day. And I watched the dogs work. And after watching one of our dogs, uh, Mojo, who was still one of my dearest, most favorite dogs on the team, after I watched him uh, work with his handler, I was sold and I think I brought my first working dog home within a week of crawling up on the pile for the first time. So, um, so it's, it's been (laughs) full bore ever since that. Well, it's easy to get hooked on that kind of thing. Plus, you know, with Joe working all these different deployments, you know, now, now it's your chance to do that. So that's, that's pretty cool too. And by the way, don't worry about that slide because Joe blames everything on Kyle. So, you know, uh, it's all Kyle. Yeah, you just got back. You, well, you have five dogs, two are pets, and you have three working dogs, one of which is Isa. And you and Isa just went on a, sounds like a very interesting Alaska trip to do cold, extreme cold weather training. I can't imagine what that's like. Well, it was it was an opportunity of a lifetime in so many different ways. Um, I had never been to Alaska. Uh, Isa had never flown. Um, she is a three-year-old Belgian Malinois, and she is a quintessential um, uh, example of the breed. She is very high drive. She's very high energy. Um, she is on all the time. Uh, just the idea of flying her from Tennessee to Alaska was um, almost a big enough adventure in and of itself, not to mention that we were leaving Tennessee in February and heading up to the Anchorage area uh, to be working in extreme cold weather and, of course, snow and ice and, and environments that we are completely unused to around here. You know, our, our winters are so mild compared to so much of the United States here in Tennessee. And um, our winters are, you know, average in the 40s and lots of rain, but we don't, you know, that's just, that's an environment unlike anything that we we would normally see. So just the ability to, um, to take her through the process of flying her with my other team members, get the dogs there and then put them to work and see how they worked in that environment it was uh, it was exciting and a little nerve wracking, but but the, the dogs did beautifully. Ultimately, how did how did Issa like the flight? Um, you know, it's a, it's amazing. We we have uh, I I was very nervous. You know, when we when we fly with the dogs, we are fortunate enough because of their status, they they get to fly at our feet. But we take them through the airport just like you would take your children or uh, any other travel partner. When we go through security, we have to strip them down of everything. We have to they have to go through every bit of obedience that we've trained uh, that we put on them. 
just to get them onto the aircraft. And then they, they, they ride at our feet. Um, I have to say the dogs did beautifully. We, we, uh, they're in some pretty uncomfortable situations and, uh, they just curl up and, and she handled it. I mean, it was a three, it was three different legs to fly from Memphis to Anchorage and, uh, the dogs really did. She traveled with, uh, her partner Suki, who is a very large female, Dutch Shepherd and and somehow the plane stayed intact the entire way. So that's pretty <laughs> remarkable in and of itself to have these two very high drive dogs um, uh, travel. But but they they did they did great. Well, were there just the two dogs, or were there others? Um, uh, we had we had a total of four dogs that we flew out there. Um, two were on two different flights. They just had a different flight schedule than we did, and so um, uh, so. Issa and I flew with uh, my partner, Brenda, and her dog, Suki, and then we had uh, two other members that were out there as well. Um, and we, we intentionally chose dogs. We had a uh, long-haired Malinois. We had the Dutch Shepherd. We had Issa, who was a very tight-coated Malinois, and then we had a Labrador. Uh, and, we, and we specifically chose dogs of different breeds um one male and three females to see how they all did in the different working environments we weren't too concerned about the labrador um you know cold weather and ice and snow is sort of their uh that's their forte but um we did intentionally pick dogs of different breed and different age to see how they would do once we got them on the ground and got them working and um it gave us a lot of useful information, which is really what this training was all about. So um, you were there with a number of different uh, other groups, right? Federal assets and other SAR groups? That's correct. So this training was, um, uh, it was a combination of, of several, of many different agencies and uh, there was military, there were federal assets, there were local assets, local canine assets. Um, and this is a multidisciplinary, multi-agency training program to prepare Alaska and, and you know, any state could put something like this together. Um, but to prepare that state for any sort of mass casualty um, event that might happen, Alaska has you know, any number of, of natural disasters that might occur there, um, not to mention, you know, we're all susceptible to those man-made disasters that happen from time to time. And um, the purpose of this drill was to have these different agencies work together to understand how they work, to understand how resources would be um, allocated across a disaster, how the different agencies would work together, um, how first on scene would then incorporate other teams as they moved in. So it was um, it, it was remarkable to have all of these agencies coming with from different disciplines, uh, different backgrounds, different training modalities to come together and say, this is how we do it. This is how uh, you should be doing it until we get here. This is, uh, you know, and, and, um, to come together for a common purpose, and and that was that was the point of the entire exercise. Well, Kyle, cold weather is is your thing, 
Um, I, I suppose you have some thoughts or questions on this, don't you? Absolutely, Sam. And uh, Kim, I am curious because um, we have a lot of working dogs up here in the mountains, specifically trained in uh, avalanche rescue. But uh, I'm curious, are your dogs trained to obey just your voice commands or do they obey anyone in a similar uniform as you? And right, like, and how does that how does that interaction happen when you're in the presence of other canine teams? So that's a great question. And what I can say is um, when we when we train our dogs for our purpose, for the um, for our canine team, we work absolutely as a group. Um, there will be many times that another handler will have to handle my dog, whether it's just for a short amount of time or actually to get the dog out and send them to search. Generally, when we're paired up with our dogs, it's it is the dog and handler pair. But but our dogs have to be able to work within reason with just about anybody. Um, but I would say once we send the dogs to work, that is that particular handler's job. I'm not going to have someone else handle my dog because the training that we do, we have to be so in tune with how our particular dog works and reacts. We have to be able to read them, to read their body language. And we all, as handlers, do things a little bit different. Um, we all have different ways that we call them, ways that we use our hand signals to direct them if we need to direct them from a distance. So uh, at the end of the day, um, it's really that core handler canine pair that's out there working. Um, but I can lean on my team members if needed to, to, um, to get a hold of my dog if needed for their safety or, you know, for whatever reason. Awesome. Yeah, I was curious about the same thing because one of the points you made to me was allowing members of other agencies to work with the dogs as they would in a real scenario. What kind of situation would that be? Well, so part of part of what we did in this scenario um, specifically is we worked on decontamination, which is um, which makes perfect sense because in a large scale disaster. We might be handling the search and rescue capabilities, but there may be another agency that's responsible for decontamination if that is a factor. So in this particular uh, exercise, we brought the dogs in and, and put them through a mock decontamination process where members of military and local law enforcement groups uh, and, and law enforcement and local first responder groups were um, had to put hands on the dogs. They had to uh, go through the motions of what the decontamination process would work like. So the dogs, even though we're there with them, um, they are being handled and touched and and decontaminated by uh, strangers, strangers in hazmat suits and masks. And, uh, you know, that's um, that's all part of uh, when we train these dogs, it's part of their environmental uh, reaction process that we put them through to make sure that we can um, work them in an environment where they might have strangers around them and they're they're going to maintain their, uh, you know, uh, maintain their cool and, and, and do what they're supposed to do. Wow, that's really interesting. Um, Kyle, did you have any other questions for Kimberly? 
I did. And this kind of goes back to, right, talking about the training in, in cold environments and things. And I'm just curious, Kimberly, what, what uh, the training topic of first aid, especially, uh, specifically canine first aid looks like, right? Are, are heat and cold injuries for the dogs part of that? And if so, like, what does that look like? So that's a great question. The cold weather obviously was our biggest concern bringing these dogs in. Our dogs really don't experience anything like that. So we were prepared with everything from boots to ear protection to heavy uh, neoprene coats that we could use on the dogs if needed. But what we found out really quickly when we got them there, first of all, our dogs are always used to running um, with nothing on their feet. So that's how they grip, that's how they um, they make contact with the ground. So as long as our dogs were not standing on ice or snow for um, an extended period of time, they did not require boots, they did just fine. Um, the temperatures were, were okay as long as we were keeping them busy and we were keeping them moving. But we did make sure that we had elevated surfaces off of the ice and snow if we needed to hold them for any amount of time, um, you know, in between their runs and between uh, searches. Um, what we what we learned by some of our colleagues out there who actually work um, dogs like the Iditarod dogs is that, you know, they use boots on those dogs uh, to prevent them from, you know, to protect their pads and their feet in the ice and snow for those long periods of time that they're running through the snow. But for our dogs, we run them in such quick bursts and what's required for the search and rescue process, um, those really were not necessary unless we knew we were just gonna have to stand them for a long time. Um, and it, again, it was one of those things that the dogs did remarkably well considering what a, um, a difference in climate than what especially our dogs from Tennessee are used to. So they, did they get on some ice? I would imagine with <laughs> trying to imagine that experience the first time they'd slide around on some ice. Um, the first time out the door was, uh, it was TikTok worthy video, honestly. They were slipping and sliding and feet and legs were going everywhere. Um, but they uh, they got a hold, of, they got uh, the handle of it pretty quickly. and. Um, and uh, we're able to to work right through it. Um, and those are the biggest things as far as their health and safety were concerned. There was, um, of course, we were monitoring things. Um, another concern that we had for them was um, exposure, their, uh, their eyes exposure to the snow. What we know is that the breeds that usually work up there, like the Huskies and um, Malamutes, have that, uh, they have dark, circles, um, you know, their fur is dark around their eyes. We know that that and, and just, you know, their uh, conditioning and exposure to the snow, um, it's not a concern for those dogs. For our dogs who aren't in that environment a lot, um, we had to minimize their uh, time out in the snow and ice just to make sure that, you know, they weren't having too much exposure to their eyes. We did have um, goggles, shaded goggles for them if they needed them. Um, <laughs> not doggles, but yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, if you want to brand some, that would be great. <laughs> I'm seeing that in the chat. Um, 
but we did have those things uh, as uh, you know protection if if needed. I'd love to have a picture of one of the dogs completely dressed out. That would be fun. Um, Jamie, I didn't go to you yet. Do you have any questions? Yeah, actually, I have a question for Joe because um, you know I know as as member of the medical team, um, one of your one of your jobs is also the the care of the um, the dogs on the team too, um, as far as keeping them well in the course of a deployment. Did did Kimberly come back with anything that you could put in your toolkit to um, be prepared in case you guys get deployed during the winter time? Well, I think a lot of the focus there was on the decon of the dogs, particularly in extreme environments where obviously it's a real challenge to be able to get a dog wet uh, when the temperature is very cold and how quickly they can get hypothermic. So, you know, it's a bit of a shift in focus there. Uh, Thankfully, there weren't any major injuries or illnesses of the dogs, uh, despite the prolonged travel and uh, the extreme circumstances. So overall, they did pretty well. Oh, that sounds really awesome. I think another thing you were doing too, Kimberly, weren't you testing out some um, winter garments there, some of your winter gear, or was that what you were talking about in terms of the dogs? Well, we did it for both the dogs and the handlers. And what we found out really quickly is just like I can imagine any first responder in uh, those extreme cold temperatures, Kyle can certainly talk to this uh, much better than I can, but, um, you know, we had very heavy um, clothing and garments to send us out there for extreme cold weather. And what we realized really quickly is that it's really hard to handle your dog. Um, you know, as handlers, we have to be able to climb on that uh, rubble pile. We have to be able to climb through that tunnel, uh, whatever else is needed for us. And so it, it um, just because it keeps you warm doesn't mean it helps you be able to do the job especially when your job is to chase a, a Malinois as she makes her way through whatever she's making her way through. So um, it was that all of that was sort of a trial and error for us. And then, you know, just tack on that you have uh, some women from Tennessee who have very strong opinions about uh, extreme cold weather. And uh, it, <laughs> it made for a learning process for all of us, certainly. I'll bet. Kyle, thoughts on that? I can absolutely agree with that, where a lot of the, the, uh, even our our uniforms that we have for Aspen Ski Company, right, it's very much of a layered approach. So, right, a shell jacket, an insulator, a soft shell, and then uh, even a vest for our equipment that we throw on over the top. So, right, it's, it's very, can be very dynamic throughout the course of a day. Uh, whether it's just it's just from you know, going from sunshine to clouds, or you have a weather system move through and the temperatures, you know, drop 20 degrees and the wind picks up, right? And having having gear that you feel comfortable moving around in, right? Because from us, we can go from skiing to kneeling at at the the side of a toboggan next to a patient, all the way to uh, potentially responding to a an avalanche where now you you're really burning a lot of calories, working really hard. You need to be able to, you know, both move effectively, but also be able to peel those layers effectively there as well. Yeah, really good point. Jamie, did you have a comment? Yeah, I just, you know, I think back to um, Joe's recent trip out to California to work on that, um, that, 
you saw our course that they that he's shown us pictures of, and I can only imagine how difficult it would be to do any kind of rescue in any in any sort of bulky winter gear, um, because and following a dog through uh, narrow spaces and confined um, places would be very difficult. I would imagine, Kimberly. It is, and and we've 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 experienced that um, in, in a lot of different. Um, uh, deployment scenarios that we've been in, um, whether it's our hazmat gear or this, you know, bulky cold weather gear, um, whatever it is that we're working in, we have to be able to stay with our dog, follow our dog, communicate with our dog. Um, and anything that gets in the way of that, um, can really, uh, hinder the, the process and the way that we work. You know, we, we work very, our dogs work very independently. They generally work with no collar, we, you know, we, when we work in a disaster um, scenario, we they're, they're, the dogs run naked. They have no collars. They have no harnesses. We have, you know, we rarely have a leash uh, to connect us. Everything is done by voice and by uh, hand signals and 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 commands and um, anything that hinders that. Whether it's your your gear or uh, breathing apparatus or whatever you might have, it can really um, impact your ability to work your dog and work your dog safely. And um, and anytime we can go out and we can do a training like this and bring back that feedback to our team and to our leadership to be able to say, this works for us, this isn't going to work for us, it all helps us plan a little bit better so that we're more prepared when we deploy. So is Issa a lifeline dog? She is. So our dogs um, on our team are one of two disciplines. They are not multi-purpose. We either have live fine canines or we have HRD, uh, human remains detection canines, and um, they they do either of those of those roles. We don't have any dogs that do both. But you and Joe have both kinds of dogs, right? We and yes. You could deploy with either one. That's right. So Issa's uh, brother and partner here at the house is Ed, and he is a seven-year-old Labrador, and he is a human remains detection uh, canine. Ed and I recently, um, we deployed to the uh, tornadoes that hit the Mayfield, Kentucky area back in December. Um, that was our most recent large-scale deployment. Yeah, that's got to be a rough one. Live finds would be much more satisfying, I would think. They are. Um, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, uh, go ahead, Kimberly. They are, um, but the HRD we have found has become so important in um, the deployment process and being able to provide closure for those families. And it's um, it's a very different way to work. It's a very meticulous and sometimes slower. Uh, process than that hurry rush in and see who's there kind of um, uh, hasty search that you do when you think you have live victims but um, but it is still very rewarding to be able to um, to provide that service whether it's on a large scale or, or even just to to local municipalities that we might be able to assist from time to time. Yeah, I think back to ground zero and, and their desperate need to find human remains, but it was just too hot for the dogs to 
run around out there. So that was unfortunate. Mm-hmm. So we're going to wind up here. Mr. Kyle, do you have any uh, more questions for Kimberly? I got two, Sam, and they, they dovetail really well on our conversation so far. So, Kimberly, pre-show, we were talking briefly about uh, some some heat injuries that could uh, occur to the dogs, especially those, uh, uh, the HRD dogs, that are working, say, in a post, uh, like a post-wildfire type scenario. Can, can you speak to that? So, wildfires have become so prevalent that Preparing and training for those has become a large part of, of our preparation. Um, there are some amazing organizations that are providing uh, burn and wildfire training, especially for canines and canine handler teams um, around the country that we have taken part in. Um, and, and those trainings help us as handlers be able to uh, know how to traverse those environments when they happen. Obviously, you know, our, our, our biggest concern as handlers is we're not going to put our canines in anything that's going to be, um, that we know to be dangerous. Obviously, if we think that there are victims out there that can be saved, we're going to do everything we can to try to get to them. But at the same time, we're not going to risk the health and safety of, of our team members, human or canine, if we can avoid it. So, um, we know when it comes to burn, we're going to look to those local resources, those local uh, first responders to let us know that it's safe. And we're going, those are the questions that we are constantly asking whenever we go into any environment is, is it safe for us to run? Can we put the dogs out here? You know, is that fire concern passed? Um, there's always enough uh, hazmat and, and and other concerns that we have um, going into any kind of environment like that. So uh, we're certainly not going to risk them if there's still active fire and heat. Um, it's just, uh, just <clears throat> in a post-fire environment, we know that breathing can be difficult. And if you think that a dog, if you, you know, realize that the dog is having to take in odor pretty much with every breath and every step as they work. Um, we have to be so mindful of what they're trying to breathe through, um, how that is impacting them and what, you know, the wind and debris and all of that. So we, we really have to take that into consideration, give them breaks as they need it, water as they need it, um, and, and all of those things to keep them safe. Right on. I, I love the mentality, right? Responder safety uh, above all else, whether it be a two-legged responder or a four-legged one. Right. And and kind of on that note then, Kimberly, and, and this is, I've heard that working dogs can experience stress injuries just like we can as humans. Now, is that true? And if so, how do you help your dogs cope? I mean, stress is absolutely a part of the the equation and it can be stress from travel um, they can very quickly develop um, whether they lose their, they don't want to eat, um, they're not taking in enough hydration, um, they'll develop GI distress very quickly if they're too stressed, um, t- extreme temperature changes. We have our dogs um, chipped with um, temperature internal temperature monitors where we can scan them like you would scan a home again chip so we can read what their internal body temperature is. Um, 
but those wild swings in temperature and just working hard, uh, depending on where they're, they're footing and, and, and everything else that they're having to work through, um, all of those things can contribute to stress illnesses. Um, and usually we'll see that in things, again, like dehydration, um, loss of appetite, uh, and of course, any sort of heat-related injury that they might have. So those are all things we have to be very mindful of um, anytime we put them out in, into an environment to work. Well, just like with a human partner, you know your dog, you know when something just isn't feeling right with them. So I imagine this is one of the things you looked for when you went into that very different environment up in Alaska. Well, certainly. I mean, that that was one of the main things that we did is we took baselines of all the dogs prior to leaving. So we knew what their baseline at home was, whether that was their temperature or the amount they were eating and drinking so that we know when we when we're out working, if we start to see differences in that, um, we're going to take it very seriously because we need the dog to be um as healthy as they can be to be able to do their job or they're just not going to be able to do it well. And, and, you know, the, you know, the, the consequence of, of that is that we have victims out there that we, we need to find. So uh, it's very important to us for so many reasons that the dogs are, are healthy and, and feeling as good as they can to work. This is fascinating, Kimberly. It really is. I could I could talk about this for another hour or so, but Kyle's used up all his questions, and if Joe has one, he can turn around and ask you. So I guess it's back to Jamie. <laughs> it absolutely uh, is just a fascinating topic. And Kimberly, thank you so much for taking the time to come on um, and join us uh, in person for the show. We, we keep up with what you're doing through Joe, but it's always great to hear directly from you and especially uh, learn a little bit more about what uh, we can expect if we're working alongside um, a USAR team that comes in with their canines to uh, assist in search and rescue. And um, so uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. It was fun being here. Um, I do want to, you know, Joe, it's, it's, it's important to train. I'm curious, does Paragon do any kind of training um, where they uh, work with dogs as part of the uh, training scenarios? Uh, they would be included. We've done some work with the bomb squad that uh, has some canine detection units and that kind of stuff. And uh, uh, frequently it'll be a piece of, uh, especially the USAR training, because that's part of the environment that folks are working in. No, I just always like to, you know, it always amazes me the type of customized, um, varied types of training that you all put together. And I think it's something that, you know, always try to touch upon when we have you on the show because uh, people can just kind of put together the scenario that works best for their system and their jurisdiction. Uh, and it's something that they can do just by reaching out to you. How, how do they go about doing that? Well, you're exactly right, Jamie. We like to customize the 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 program uh, to fit the needs of uh, our clients. Uh, we look forward to talking to folks. They can find us at Paragon Medical Education Group uh, on the web or on Facebook and uh, can obviously reach us through the Disaster Podcast. And Kimberly, I've got to ask you, um, is there um, a good place? I guess people can touch base with you through the uh, Facebook group, correct? 
Uh, certainly they can do that. And, and we are also part of the USAR Foundation, um, which is the usarfoundation.org. And you can learn more about what we do and, and how we uh, support bringing in potential search and rescue canines and, and uh, provide everything that they need from their training to their vet care and uh, all the equipment and supplies needed to uh, to make these dogs the heroes that they are. So you can find out more about that there. Great. I'll make sure we include that in the show notes as well. Uh, Kyle, where can folks track down what you're up to? Well, Jimmy, folks can find me on all major social media platforms under the handle WX Kyle Nelson. I'd love to connect with our listeners to continue the conversation. I'll be sharing updates of all the uh, fun spring and summer adventures to come. You're always doing so many amazing things. It's always great to track down what you're what you're doing at any given time. So, uh, thanks for keeping us up to date with what's going on, Sam. Where can folks find you? The usual social media places under Sam Bradley or Sam Bradley Eleven. Um, we're also still working on our humanitarian effort through. IDMC, so that's idmc.us if you want to learn about that. And certainly the disasterpodcast.com website and Facebook group. What about you, Jamie? People can track me down under the handle Podmedic in most social media channels out there. So please uh, track me down and um, follow me if you so choose to do so. I always like to keep in touch with folks, of course, over at the Disaster Podcast Facebook group and uh, DisasterPodcast.com, where uh, you can also subscribe to the show. So if you have your favorite iOS or uh, Android device, uh, you can subscribe that way or even by email if you want to make sure you don't miss any future upcoming episodes. Episodes. And, you know, all this talk about USAR and, and uh, search and rescue dogs and, and the search and recovery uh, missions uh, it's got me thinking about what you talked about at the end there, Sam, which was, which was our, the humanitarian efforts over in Ukraine. And it makes me wonder what kind of uh, search and rescue and search and recovery efforts are happening there all the time with all of the collapsed structures from the, from the shelling and things like that. So uh, it's just got to be a lot of work for a lot of people out there yeah it's horrendous in fact i remember when we did some training over there back in 2000 they were just introducing um search and rescue dogs in ukraine so uh, i'm sure they're being well used by now but you know one thing we need to do jamie is appreciate all of our first responders the ones with two legs and the ones with four legs <laughs>